Fortnite in Film is a podcast where every week you get the chance to listen in on a group of film lovers chatting about the great, or not so great, movies that we've been watching over the past fortnight. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Fortnite in Film. I'm your host Jason. And I'm your co-host George. Thanks for tuning in. Let's kick off with my pick, which is Singing in the Rain from 1952. So directed and choreographed by uh, Stanley Donan and Gene Kelly. Uh, Gene Kelly also stars in it, um, as does Donald O'Connor and Debbie Reynolds. Stanley Donan was a pretty famous director from the 50s, 40s, 50s. I would say, a golden age of cinema. I've seen two of his other films. I've seen Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and oh, Indiscreet with uh, Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. Um, okay, I also own four of his other films, uh, but I haven't seen them yet. Um, Charade from 1963, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers from 1954, Royal Wedding from 1951, and The Pajama Game from 1957. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen... Um... I've seen Charade, which is which is a great film. Um, Funny Face and Two for the Road, which is um, again it's a it's sort of like a marriage road trip almost, but that's that's good, that's very good. So yeah, he's a he's a prolific director. So the plot follows. Uh, so it starts in in sort of the um, mid to late twenties, uh, when the film industry is still silent or sort of on the cusp of of a. The film industry changing over from silent films to talkies. Um, Gene Kelly uh, plays this star called Don Lockwood, uh, and his frequent co-star Lena Lamont, who's played by Gene Hagen, they're attending this premiere together of their latest film. Publicity department of the uh, studio, as they did in those days, has a uh, cooked up you know stories about oh they're, they're together you know they're in love, um, but actually. Uh, Don cannot stand Lena, and she's sort of deluded as to their relationship status or lack thereof. After the premiere, um, Don has all his fans mob him, uh, and he ends up jumping into the car of Kathy Seldon, and she sort of uh, brushes him off. He finds out. He goes to his party later on that night, and she's a dancer there. But, you know, she she makes out. You know, when when she's talking to him, oh, you know screen actors because it's still a silent film industry i know you know you silent film stars you know you're not, you don't really have any talent you just fail on the screen you know i'm a stage actress etc um and then yes he attends his party and she happens to be a dancer at the party uh, and he finds out that yeah she's not this stage actress as she said uh and she goes to throw a cake in his face that misses and hits lena instead uh so lena ends up getting her fired but, you know, Don is, is sort of enchanted with this woman and spends the next few weeks looking for her and uh, ends up finding her uh, and they sort of start up a, a friendship, a uh, relationship. Um, and because a film called The Jazz Singer, which is a real film, um, has just come out, which is widely considered sort of, I guess, the first talkie, and audiences are going mad over, the, uh, the studio decides, well, okay, we're going to make this film we're shooting called The Dueling Cavalier, we're going to make that a talkie. Lena uh, has this very grating voice, 
which does not suit itself to talkies. Um, so they have to figure out, okay, well, how can we shoot this as a talkie uh, without having to hear her voice? So uh, Don and uh, Kathy and Don's friend uh, Cosmo Brown uh, end up brainstorming that, well, it should become a musical. And what we will do is we will dub Lena's voice. Um, so Lena is the actress, but uh, her lines are spoken and sung. Is it spoken and sung or just sung? I think it's both. You know, Lena is obviously jealous of, of Kathy. You know, she, she works out this deal with the, the movie studio where uh, Kathy has to keep dubbing her uh, for a whole career because, you know, she's she's jealous of uh, of Kathy in terms of both in terms of uh, the relationship between Don and her and in terms of uh, the uh, studio intending that they're going to give Kathy the screen credit and they're going to build up as this big star once the film has come out. Um, so the film premieres and it's this big success. Everybody's sort of getting tired of, of Lena's behaviour, uh, including the, uh, the studio head who is quite um, accommodating. She wants to sort of have control over the studio, right? Like she wants to um, relegate, um, what was her name? Kathy. Kathy to just like her sort of being her being her voice behind the scenes all the time. Yeah, and yeah. not actually having an acting career of her own or a yeah. singing career or anything. Yeah. Um, so at, at the premiere, you know, uh, Lena goes to sing, and obviously Kathy dubs her from behind the curtain, so the audience is unaware. But then uh, between them, uh, the studio head, um, who is called R.F. Simpson, uh and Don and Cosmo decide well, we've had enough of this and they take the curtain down and uh, it's revealed obviously that it's all Kathy. The film ends happily ever after with uh, with Kathy becoming a star uh, and it's, you know the film is actually you see a billboard at the end where it has you know Don Lockwood and Kathy Selden uh, on the uh, poster of this Jordan Cavalier film. Um, so that's a plot. Uh, there's a lot of obviously music numbers, dance numbers, etc., thrown in there, in between. Um, so I gave this five stars. I was I was kind of like, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking if Jason gives this any less than, let's say four or three point five, I'm gonna flip flip my shit. <laughs> but luckily, <laughs> you didn't because I think it's impossible if you if you don't like this film. I don't trust you, <laughs> and you have no heart. Um, so, yeah, I'm glad you did. Well, Letterboxd agrees with you. It's sitting at a 4.3 average, uh, 102 on the top 250, just just outside of the top 100. Um, so yes, I gave it five stars. I thought it was amazing. I actually have put it as, and I know we discussed this uh, yesterday, I believe, I've actually put it as the best musical ever. Yeah, it I is, mean... It is you knocked know, off. I, I had to sound the music there, for sentimental reasons, if I afford about it, and I'm like, no, actually, you know what? I'm going to bump the sound of music off. So it's been relegated to number three. Wizard of Oz is in number two, and uh, Singing in the Rain has become number one in my list. <laughs> I can see, you know, it's it's number four on mine, but um, in like a sort of alternate universe, it could easily be number one because it's like, you know, we I'll talk about it more, but it is, you know, it's the quintessential like. Um, you know, Hollywood musical. It's got it's got everything. 
I have lots to say about it, but I know you do too. So why don't you tell us what you also love about it? <laughs> well, I mean, again, it goes without saying. I gave it, I gave it five stars. Um, you know, it's one of my favorite musicals ever. I, I had actually seen it before when I was young. I've seen it maybe I don't know four, five, six times maybe over the years. Um, but before yesterday, I hadn't seen it in like years. So I was happy to to sort of go back to it. And like I'd actually, I'd never seen it. it was sort of a blind uh, yeah pick for me, which was actually the first uh, blind pick of mine mm-hmm. um, that I've given five stars to in over a year. So for the podcast, wow, that is. Okay. So the, the last one was Apocalypse Now, all the way back in episode twenty-seven yeah. um, in July of last year with Christian. Um, and actually, of the hundred and seventy plus films I've seen this year that are new watches, um, it's only the fifth one. I've given five stars to um, the other four are The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, uh, The Phantom of the Opera 2004, Citizen Kane 1941, and Donnie Brasco 1997. Those are the only new films I've seen this year that have managed to earn a coveted five stars for my miserly uh, film ratings. <laughs> I mean, even for me, I haven't given out too many five stars over the um, since like February time. Obviously, this is a rewatch, so I knew it was going to be five stars. But um, yeah, what can I say? I don't know. Like every every single dance, like every single dance number is just so delightful. You know the the way the way they sort of move through the space, um, sort of using the environment. It's just so good. Um, it's so you know it's so joyful. It's one of the most joyful films ever. Um, it's just yeah it's like a perfect fusion of like musical comedy romance you know it, it's kind of like a meal with all the right ingredients put together and you know it's going to taste like amazing you know um and yeah you know the the story has some pretty you know relatable themes in terms of the, obviously the the whole transition from silent film to talkie is quite a big topic and it handles that really well and it sort of satirizes it really well um, you know, it sort of pokes fun at the, you know, egos, the struggles, the sort of absurdities of, of the film industry, which is really good. And the sort of witty dialogue and the comedy help that. The the performances are all good, the characterizations are all are all sort of excellent. Um and the the main thing is like the integration of music and dance into the narrative is so good. Like the like the numbers, they're not just entertaining, but they like they sort of deepen the characters' relationships, you know, and they sort of advance the plot. They're not just there for the sake of it, apart from maybe one or two, um, but they're sort of integral to the story, which I like. Um, and yeah, you know, it, ju- it just has this sort of timeless charm. Someone watching it in 100 years is still going to like this film for, like, the things. Yeah, I mean, well, we're watching it over 70 years later and we both still love it, as do the majority of other people who watch it so you know the other thing is the way it handles satire you know it's sort of um it's it's a parody of this film era so it's sort of making fun of it but also kind of nostalgic for it in a way you know uses a lot of sort of self-referential humor you know inside jokes you know jabs it satirizes sort of like constructed public images of these celebrities so like with gene hagen you know she's this star but everyone is full of fooled by her because she has this stupid voice but they think oh she's amazing you know um but she's actually just a sort of a fake almost <laughs> um so I, I love the sort of yeah the sort of 
humorous and the satirical elements. You know, Gene Kelly is just so he's so like athletic. You know, he just bow, he's just like bounding around the screen everywhere, and he's like charming. You know, he's charismatic. Um, Donald O'Connor is brilliant as Cosmo. His his like physical comedy is amazing. You know. It's it's amazing. Like Chaplin, almost Chaplin esque. <laughs> well, you you would know. You've uh, seen yeah, Chaplin yeah, films, uh, you've uh, seen. I know, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Demi Reynolds is good. I want to talk more about her, but she's good. Um, Gene Hagen. I think Gene Hagen won the Oscar, I believe. Yes, for best uh, supporting actress, I believe. Yeah, she's she's great. Like she comes across as this like bitch. But she also has to be funny, so it's quite a difficult yeah. thing. I, I wonder if that's her real voice. I would hope not, because that is a very annoying voice to be born with. <laughs> Surely not. Surely not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, Gene Kelly, you know, his dancing prowess, you know, his acting range is good. He can sing. Um, he was part, he co-directed it too, so he had to handle all the you know choreography and the artistic vision, so he had to do both. Debbie Reynolds, basically, she, I heard, I read that she was basically not abused, but a bit bullied by Gene Kelly because she couldn't dance that well. So basically, there was a moment where she was, she was like crying under a desk because he was like sort of saying, you're, you're shit, basically. <laughs> and then Fred Astaire found her crying and sort of gave her tips and like helped her. And then she, um, she went out and did the uh, good morning sort of dance really well. Um, but she said her feet were bleeding. And then she said, I've got a quote, she said that singing in the rain and childbirth were the two hardest things I ever had to do in my life. <laughs> so, you know, the, the sort of endurance and the professionalism that she had to, you know, do, learn all these dance routines. Um, but she remained dedicated, you know, through the whole thing. I mean, is there any true art without sacrifice? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but also, um, I imagine it would be very hard for her to hold her own in that sense right because she wasn't a professional dancer i don't believe whereas gene kelly was this incredible dancer and donald o'connor was this incredible dancer yeah yeah but she in in good morning she totally holds her own well you know but obviously that's a lot of blood sweat and tears that's gone into that because it looks perfect on the screen no exactly yeah watching it you would never know that right yeah you would never know you would never know um i've spoken about gene hagan you know i i love her she's so funny um i love her performance Especially at the end, you know, she sort of she gets her comeuppance. Because what we want, I was like, I'm glad we got that as viewers. Because I was like, I want you to get your just desserts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to mention. I don't know if you've seen her before, but Sid Sid Therese, her cameo. You know, in a Broadway melody ballet. Oh yeah. She's the girl who you know the leg, you know, yeah. the sort of leg pops up. She is incredible. Um, I saw her in the Bandwagon. She's the lead role in the bandwagon. And she is just, she's so good. Like her dancing is just so precise, you know, fluid, elegant. Um, her chemistry with Gene Kelly is amazing. And yeah, it just... I mean, that was one of the, I mean, it's so hard because so many, so much of a film had this amazing sequence. That was one of the best sequences in the film, that whole Broadway melody and just. Yeah. But she's so like visually striking. You know what I mean? Like her, she, her movements are just so graceful um and it's sort of her cameo provides a sort of contrast to the rest of the film it sort of feels different but it adds something a lot more sort of dramatic in a way like she's different for someone like debbie reynolds who's more of like a sort of everyday girl you know she's she's still attractive sid Therese is just like wow like she's on the screen you know 
The musical numbers are all great in their own way. You know, you've got Singing in the Rain, uh, Make Him Laugh, um, Moses Supposes, um, Good Morning. You know, they're, they're all kind of unique in their own way. And um, Singing in the Rain, I think, is probably the best musical sequence of any musical, I might say. Um, you're, you're like, hmm. No, I, I, would, it, it, I would... It has I, a claim. It has a claim. It has yeah, a claim to I, me. I, I would probably agree with that. I mean, I think the only one that could maybe top it is, like, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But that is that is just singing, obviously. Whereas Fred Astaire is... Uh, not Fred Astaire. Gene Kelly is obviously also dancing at the same time as he's singing, which is tougher, right? So I would probably give the edge to that. Yeah, I would I, I would agree with you. I, I think it's probably the best. But yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 music art the music and dance provide a way for the characters to sort of express their emotion. You know, they can convey, you know, joy, love, frustration, all, all this sort of stuff. Um and they as I said before, they advance the plot, which is what a musical should should do. Um and you know, they provide chances for characters to show their character development, you know. Um, and, yeah, you know, they're just... The, the choreography, the the lyrics, the, you know, the dancing, the narrative integration, they're just, they're just so good. Um, they use the sort of storytelling tools to, like, enhance the narrative. Um, and, yeah, we can talk about Singing in the Rain later. I have some notes on the actual sequence, maybe. But yeah, and then finally, you know, it's inspired a lot of future filmmakers with its with its um, integration of music and dance, its technological innovation. Damien Chazelle for you know La La Land, yeah, which, um, which also gave five stars to fantastic, yeah, film. yeah, yeah. Um, Baz Luhrmann for Moulin Rouge, he said it uh, influenced him. Um, even Tarantino has said it influenced him because the way it incorporates music and dance to enhance the storytelling, he said. He's sort of used that in his own work. Um, and uh, I read something on yeah. Wikipedia that said uh, uh, Francois Truffaut, is that how you say his name? Yeah. Um, I've got this quote as well, but you say it. Okay, well, okay. You, you, hey, yeah. If you've got it down, yeah. you say it then. Cause it's yours. No, okay, well, <laughs> okay, well, no, okay. Um, yeah, so Betty Comden and Adolf Green, who are the writers, right? Um they were they report that you know, they, they met Truffaut at a party and he said that he was excited to meet the writers of the film and um he told them that he's seen it so many times he knew it frame by frame <laughs> and that uh, he and another director called Alan Resne um among other people went to see it regularly at a small sort of cinema where it ran for months which just shows the influence it has even on bloody one of the best directors of the French New Wave you know um and there's another director of the French New Wave called Jacques Demy, um, who did um, Umbrella for Cherbourg and The Young Girls of Rockford. And he even cast Gene Kelly in The Young Girls of Rockford. He's, he's in that. So he paid the best homage you could to that, to Singing in the Rain, because he cast the star in one of his films. <laughs> it's very important in film and musical history. And just, yeah, the way it integrates the music and dance routines in the film is just a grade and the way it's good apart from the dance scenes as well like it's funny even when they're not doing a number it's like it's nicely plotted you like the characters it's funny it you know it makes you laugh um so yeah that's my that's my rant on it but i'm sure you'll you'll agree and add to to that yes i mean yeah so basically said everything i would have said um 
it's yeah i mean i think ever, like the songs and the singing and the dancing and the choreography which are obviously two separate things um you know like the songs itself is different from the singing and the dancing itself is different than the choreography but i mean all four of those things were just fantastic i mean i don't think i've seen a better choreographed or performed film in terms of the dancing it's the way they move through the space and they use all the space like i find it hard to explain but they don't waste any moment of any area that they're in you know they sort of use it to their full advantage um in the is it good morning you know when they go in the kitchen and then they go into the living room they use the sofa they use the coat rack you know they use everything <laughs> to their advantage it's great yeah and you obviously see that too and make it laugh yeah where the cosmo, cosmo uses yeah. everything yeah. around him and he's back flipping off yeah. sets and yeah. you know yeah it's um brilliant. yeah and like i think the songs are just they're so catchy they're so entertaining and just they're just so like iconic to where i've never seen this film but I was like, like I know Singing in the Rain, I, I know Good Morning, or I know Make Them Laugh. Even though I hadn't seen the film before, I, I was still familiar with those songs, um, which obviously shows how the film has sort of embedded itself in the culture. Yeah, I mean, everyone, you know, Singing, singing in the Rain is, you know, one of the iconic songs ever, you know. If you haven't heard that, you've been living under a rock for your whole life, you know. <laughs> yeah, so they so... were all just fantastic. And, and one point I made in my review for this film on Letterboxd, as I said, it's it's a testament to how many actors and actresses back in the golden age of Hollywood were like true triple threats. They could act, they could sing, they could dance, and they could do them all fantastically. Now, who can do that in Hollywood? I can't, I mean, it's barely hard to find someone who can act, let alone someone who can sing or dance. I know. I'm trying to think. The closest male actor I can think of, he can't sing, but and he's an okay actor, is Tom Holland. He's not a world-class actor, but he can dance as well because he's done ballet. Um, so there are some, but you know, no, no one even comes close to someone like Gene Kelly or Judy Garland or anyone. No, exactly, no. But it's like you, you think back in the day, that was the norm. Right? Actors and actresses had to be able to act, sing, dance. Now, I said, it's, it's, it's pathetic, you know. <laughs> James, James, um, James Cagney, you know, he played yeah. bloody gangsters the whole time. He could tap that. He, he was. Oh yeah, yeah, he was a fantastic dancer, right? Dancer. And he yeah. could sing okay. Right, exactly. So you know, it's. it's I, I think um, it's just testament yeah. to how, you know, that era of Hollywood is just like the pinnacle to me. Like nothing will ever top like. Yeah, it's why you I mean you yes. know you know I love yeah. it. So you know it's it's. it's, it's 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 on show in, exactly. in the singing in the rain. Um, and I just think you, you know. just look at the quality of the acting. I'm like, hey, actors, and I, I could list off, you know, so many films from the fifties. They were just so much better actors than I feel like. And if you look at the performances of them, I'm like, no, like no one is acting like that nowadays. You know, like I mean, obviously, yes, there's still great acting performances, but I mean, it's it's different yeah. styles. It's different styles. Yeah. But um, yeah, you know, for for what it is, the acting yeah. just fits just right in this film. It's, and like I'd never actually seen any of the three leads in it um, before. Not, okay, so, I've seen Gene Kelly in a, in a fair few other. Yeah, so I'm like, um, I definitely want to check out more of his stuff. Um, yeah. I thought like the script was great. I mean, there's so many scripts in that era. Are like it was just full of this like quick fire wit and this humor and this charm. Um, I mean, everything you said, the sets, the colors, the costumes, the cinematography, the score, it was all just like outstanding. Like technically you can't find any fault what i love is that the the, the broadway melody ballet um you know the last big set piece with Gene. so in a sense that didn't really need to be in there like it didn't 
really advance the plot much. But but it doesn't matter because Gene Kelly was obviously just like, we need to get this big number in. We need to get Sid Charisse in for a cameo. We need to do this uh, just to like finish the film with a bang in a way. Because if it didn't, what replaces Broadway Melody Ballet? Like they just go to the premiere and that's it. Like it's a perfect like sort of musical finish to the film, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I agree with that because it's like like I said, it didn't need to be in there, but the film was better for it. Like it did it serve a purpose in the in the in the sense of a plot? No. But the film actually benefits from it being in there and having all these, you know, these people and then it shifts to like them, Sid Charisse and um Gene Kelly in that like sort of desert looking place and that scene when you have them back in the border it's yeah that's it's as it's, it's one it's one of the best scenes in a film that is full of amazing scenes yeah because you know there's the scene where they're going through like there's his commentator and he's going through the ladies fashion of the era he's going through all the 20s i love that as well because i read that they were basically taking the piss of 1920s outfits even though they were only what like 20 30 years after they were just well. It's like us taking the piss of like eighties outfits. Yeah, I guess. right. Yeah, <laughs> but that, I, I found that so. You know, yeah, it wasn't just the dancing. There's also some really funny moments in there that aren't. No, just... there is, and, and I think a lot of the humor for me came from that physical comedy of Donald O'Connor. Like he was just so funny in his character. Yeah, him and Gene Hagen. Yeah, see, but Gene see, Hagen she too. just she just annoyed um, me. It was just I couldn't get over that voice. I just couldn't get over the voice. That's the point of it. That's the point. But you know. The scene where she's um, they're trying to get the microphone, they're trying to get her to speak into the microphone, and they're putting it in the hedge, and then they're putting it on her, you know, her chest, and she just can't do it. It's just, it's just hilarious. It's so funny. Um, and then this is a random comment, but actually, you know, the song uh, "Make Them Laugh" by Cosmo, that's actually that melody. I think they had some trouble over it. It's actually taken from a uh, an- another film called "The Pirate" with a uh, Judy Garland. But the song is called um, Be a Clown. So instead of make them laugh, make them laugh, it's be a clown, be a clown. So if you listen to them side by side, it is crazy. They're, they're the same song. But that's the only song which I think had trouble being like, oh, you you like stole that from the pirate. Um, but the rest are all, you know, sort of original. Um, but yeah. And the, um, the singing in the rain um, sort of number gene kelly actually had a fever whilst filming it <laughs> which is crazy because he, he smashes it the visuals with like the rain coming down the streets like the like the lamppost like like the composition of that scene the way he moves through it is just so good right um and i think i read that the sort of um for the time in terms of technically it was like really good for its time like the controlled rainfall and the um like they use synchronized sound recording and like all the camera movements, they were apparently really like sort of ahead of their time. Yeah, well, you think of how hard it would be to pull that dance off anyway, and then you've got to do it in these wet, you know, conditions. Yeah, yeah. But it, and the way it like, you know, you can tell that Don is so happy just from the way he's, you know, singing and dancing. Like, you can just, the joy is like, it makes you happy just watching him be happy. I saw actually uh, there was a YouTube comment on the video of Singing in the Rain, um, uploaded by Turner Turner Classic Movies, um, to where somebody commented and said, uh, I love how the last line where he says, I'm dancing and singing in the rain was after the cop 
was giving him a stern look. Not only was it the last line of a song, but he's saying it to the cop as if to say, what are you going to do? Arrest me for being happy? So brilliant. A truly magical scene. So I'm like, I feel like that sums up. Yeah, no, it is. And it's saying. so like, it's so like culturally ingrained into people's minds as well. Oh yeah. You know, like, you know, it sort of, it sort of represents what classic Hollywood musicals can sort of be in a way. Um, but yeah. And Gene Kelly is just so like, as I said, athletic, graceful. You know, it's it's no one quite dances like him, apart from maybe Fred Astaire, those two. Um, but he's just so good to watch. You, it, it's sort of like an addiction watching him dance. You know, it's so good. Well, after a good start, um, agreeing on five stars, yeah, that's pretty yeah, good. There we go. Um, exactly. Let's move on to your pick. Okay, so my pick is um, L.A. Confidential from. Was it ninety seven? Yes, correct. Which which the year of my birth. <laughs> and I'll just note too, this was a, this was a, came after many uh, failed attempts uh, by you to pick something, none of which I could uh, get a hold of to watch. So yeah, I think it was maybe ten. 10 <laughs> no, not it not was nine. 10, I think I think this is the ninth pick. Because um, you, you did yeah. pick Ferris Bueller's yeah. Day Off uh, for one of them, that I was like, oh, yeah, exactly. I've seen that before, and uh, you see I, know, that, I don't, okay. I don't. That film was all right, but I don't. I think people, you know, it's one of those films. I think, isn't it from the eighties? I think like early eighties or something. Yeah. I think it's one of those films where it's like people who grew up in the eighties hold it like really fondly, you know. But which is fine. It's like I had films from like the nineties and the noughties, which I, which Cry I. Baby, but no, I, I, I didn't see Cry Baby. Until I was in my twenties, I think. But I mean, oh, like, okay. there's films I hold up there, you know, like like on pure nostalgic purposes, like Home Alone or like Jumanji. Or you know films like well like I grew up watching them so I'm like I'll always love them as such and I feel like people have that with yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off they're like oh that was such an amazing film but I'm like I feel like it's just they watch it when they were growing up and they think it's amazing but... I mean <laughs> I can't comment because no. I haven't seen it I'm sure I'm sure yeah. I like I mean it, yeah it, it, I, I mean it wasn't a bad it. film it was just oh. I feel like it's one of those okay overrated 80s films that people just love because right, they watch okay. it when they were kids or something okay but... <laughs> well the the ju- jury's out on that one because i need to see it <laughs> um yeah so okay so um edit confidential yeah 97 um directed by curtis hansen who has done what else, what else he's done quite he a bit so he's uh, he, he did eight mile funnily enough um <laughs> oh okay that's probably that's probably his um, most other famous film that he's done yeah i haven't seen any of yeah this is the only one of his i've seen okay but yeah, so shall I? Oh, the story, I don't know what to do with the story. <laughs> it, 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 it's yeah, so it's confusing. very convoluted. Uh, I got it off Wikipedia, but it's quite long. But shall I just read it? Or... Yeah, I mean, or I you mean... can attempt to like, know, summarize it somehow. Or or even okay, just, no, I mean, I what's, the, I what's the letterbox synopsis of it? Because you can even just read that. And... The letterbox <laughs> synopsis, well, yeah, <laughs> let people watch yeah. it for themselves. Which, which, which I've done um, a few times, it, you know. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, it is so, it is so hard to... um. To yeah. explain what the story is. I mean, I uh, I, so I, I did this. What was the film yeah. I did it with? Um, I did it with a discreet charm of a bourgeois, where I literally just read the letterbox thing, and I'm like, this is all you're gonna get because it's too confusing. So yeah, so 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 if you'd like, you can read the letterbox synopsis, and I can try to fill in some of the gaps. <laughs> so well, all, all it says is um, three detectives. That's um, he's called Edmund Exley. There are three detectives. There's Edmund Exley, Bud White. Um, who's Russell Crowe, Exley is um, uh, Guy Pierce, and then um, Jack Vincennes, who's Kevin Spacey. 
Um, it says three detectives in the corrupt and brutal LA police force of the 50s used differing methods to uncover a conspiracy behind the shotgun slayings of the patrons at an all-night diner. Yeah, which which is really only the um, first sort of bit of a film. There's obviously yeah, so much more. It basically, they <laughs> it's sort of like they sort of establish why each of these people became a cop, right? So Edmund Exley, his dad, his father, who was also a cop, was killed by an unknown assailant, um, who he's nicknamed Rolo Tomasi. And he wants to like be a sort of upstanding cop now to like catch him in a way or like catch criminals. Um, Bud White, Russell Crowe, is obsessed with punishing men who abuse women because his own mother was beaten to death by his father. Um, and Jack Vincennes is a narcotics detective who's a technical advisor on this show, who um, is by sort of wait, does. Sid Hudgens, he's Danny DeVito. Is he like a he's like a writer of a yeah, magazine. like a tabloid so magazine? He's sort of in it for himself, yeah. I guess. He wants to get famous often, you know. Yeah. So basically, Bud White's partner Stensland gets murdered in this diner, and then it all kicks off this whole story of trying to figure out, you know, who killed them. And then turns out the main police chief, who we think is good at the start, turns out to be corrupt. Um. And yeah, I don't know if you can yeah, so it, it, so I lost track of the plot so many times. I was like, who, who is he? Who's he? Who's he? What's happening? Okay, yeah, so I'll, um, I'll try and fill in because I loved it. It sounds like you yeah. might not have loved it, but I did. I liked it okay. actually. No, so, so the, the basic gist of it is so there's this, as you said, this, this chief, uh, Dudley Smith, right? And he's sort of a mastermind because the whole thing is about corruption. It's set in the 50s uh, in uh, LAPD. Um, and it's the whole point of it is it's there's all this like interlinked corruption, some of it going back decades. So the, the, the overall thing of the movie is there is a a uh, sort of crime kingpin called Mickey Cohen, and this Dudley Smith, because he is corrupt, decides to take over Cohen's criminal empire, and so everything that happens in the film is basically related to that. So this Stensland uh, gets killed um, by this other uh, uh, cop, ex-cop, um, who then gets killed himself um, because, you know, there's like there's like a heroin, you know, like we're trying to get heroin to sell um, and like one of the cops stole it from this guy so when he kills him and he kills a cop who killed him. Um, uh, you know, uh, Vincennes, you know, finds out that, that uh, you know, this Dudley Smith is linked to, to one of these cops and that they, like, dropped an investigation on this other guy and so then, like, Vincennes gets killed because he's figured it out. Um, you know, like, he has this deal with, like, the DA um, where, like, he, you know, like, because there's this, as you mentioned, there's this guy, this Sid Hodgins, who runs this tabloid magazine, who, who like gets all these compromising photos of people, um, and you know, like he he works with the DA, uh, you know, to like like work for him and like you know put stuff in his favor, and and yeah, it, it gets to the end where Exley and uh, and White team up, um, and after sort of feuding because they were both in love with this same woman called Lynn, uh, who 
he who works for this guy called Patrick who runs this this big scheme where he's like he's running like drugs and he's like running prostitutes who he who he makes undergo plastic surgery look like movie stars excellent why it find out you know Dudley Smith is behind this this whole thing uh, that he sort of set you know he 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 set these initial murders up in the first place to kill Stensland then he got these you know these uh suspects you know like these fake suspects like he, he planted it on them um so that you know the the police would get rid of them um and then he's using like Hudgens, like he's using his like blackmail photos to get things out of people. Um, and then he's killing like, you know, this Mickey Cohen's, uh, you know, people who work for him, he's killing them. And it's basically also that Smith can, Smith and this Patrick guy can take over the criminal empire of Mickey Cohen. And it culminates in um, Smith laws actually in white to an ambush. Um, they basically wipe out all of Smith's men, but uh, Smith ends up, I thought he actually killed him, but we were at the end, he does not. Um, he uh, wounds White, um, and uh, just as just before the police pull up, uh, actually ends up killing Smith. Uh, but the LAPD decides to cover it all up, um, because, you know, if it's got out, that all these different cops, especially this huge big guy and Dudley Smith was running this corrupt, you know, criminal enterprise for many years. Um, it would obviously not look good for them. So they make out that like Smith died a hero and, uh, and actually gets a, a bravery medal. I just, I just actually thought that was a very good summary of the plot. <laughs> but, <laughs> what is it? It's a very yeah. convoluted well, I just film, thought, but... imagine if you're a cop in like LA today, that stuff probably still goes on and you're thinking, and even the Met, the uh, Met Police here, which is the London's main police, there's been a report on how sort of corrupt and you know sexist and all it is. So it's quite kind of relevant actually today. Yeah, I'm sure there's many police departments all over the world yeah. where, you know, as there is in you everything, know, there's probably all sorts of politicians all over the world. Be good yeah. cops, of course. Be good cops, yeah. Also, you know, corruption happens. Well, it's like power. Anytime anybody gets any power in whatever it is, police, politics business you know there's there's always some degree of corruption so how are we tackling how are we tackling it well i yeah so i i loved it i gave it four and a half stars um i was really good i was gonna give it five stars and the only reason i didn't is because i was like i, I don't really have a reason for it because i was looking at like five stars and like i can't really find any faults of it but i was looking on my list of crime films and i was like can I really rate it? Because I looked at the other films I have, like, around sort of where it is in the list. And so there's a few others that are on four and a half stars. And I was like, can I really rank it above them? So it was like, can I rank it above, like, The Big Heat, Road to Perdition, Seven, Zodiac, Changeling, Mystic River? I was like, mm, maybe not. I mean, but it's, I really can't find fault with it. So I might, I mean, I feel like, I feel like I could sell up it to five stars. But then I also feel like if I had to, if I had to justify taking that half star off, I'm like it is very convoluted, and maybe it tied together too neatly. Um, but I was like, really, it's it's a fantastic film. I thought all the acting was great. Um, I can't fault anyone on that front. I thought it was just this classic, like twisty crime thriller. Obviously, it was a neo noir. It was very much um, it did that well. I thought that sort of genre. Um, I thought the tension the whole way through was great because it was just like one twist after another and this person's involved and that person's involved and 
and you're finding out who's doing what at the same time as the people in the film and and you're trying to work it out just like they are um i very much like that about it um and i also like the fact that so many people in the story died um you know because i'm like well that's realistic right it's like there's some films that would have done it where everybody lives and although although somehow russell crowe survived even though i swear he was shot like five times i know yeah but... that, that, that when i yeah. saw him at the end i'm like but it's dumb um maybe that's what i can use to justify my half style of actually because that was yeah. when he was sitting in the car i'm like how are you alive? That was so dumb, literally. Um, yeah, so actually, yeah, that's a good point. There you go. That's what you get at a confidential. You get half a star knocked off for keeping Russell Crowe alive. But it was good that, you know, when you get to the end of the story, the only people left alive are um, Exley, White, who is in some sort of injured state, and uh, Lynn. And yeah. that's it. I mean, uh, um, Vincent's death scene had me like, oh, shit. Like, I didn't expect that. that oh, yeah, yeah, neither did I. Because he said you, you didn't even connect it at the time. And then, but then he, he just turns they around show, and bang. To be, to be fair, though, they showed a really, like, menacing shot of um, the captain. And I was like, he's definitely going to do something. But I was still kind of shocked oh, yeah. when he, like, shot him. But see, but, see then, then, then he fucked up because he, he went to um, Exley's character and he was like, Rollo Tomasi. I'm like, why are you showing out like that, dude? Like, come on, like, have a bit of have a bit of nuance about you know your dastardly plans. But um, no, I loved it. I thought it was great, fantastic crime film, fantastic thriller noir. Um, loved it. Good. So I gave it four stars. So I thought it was a very, I thought it was a very good film. Um, I didn't like it as much as you, um, mainly because the. the the story I did like it was you know sort of intricately woven with all these you know storylines and twists, but I just lost track and at some point I had no clue. Maybe I don't know if I was being dumb. It seems to confuse a lot of other, of other people too, but I had no clue what was happening. Yeah, I, I definitely had to look on Wikipedia to help me to understand who was connected to who and why they're doing this and how does this person fit in. Yeah, it was yeah. That's what I said. There, there, there was a lot going on. Yeah, because all the other noirs that I love aren't that intricately plotted. I feel like it was almost too, and and the ending was almost too convenient. It was it was sort of too happy. Yeah, that's you know? fair. Yeah. Um, but I like how they wrote it because it takes skills to write a narrative that you know twisty, but and, and it's actually based it on a novel as well. So yeah, um, I like the sort of moral ambiguity in the characters. You know, like the sort of um, um, is it Exley? He sort of starts off as a sort of good cop, and he at, by the end he sort of realised that in order to make it in the police force, you have to be almost this corrupt guy in a way. Like yeah, which is which is obviously what Dudley Smith tells him throughout. But it's good yeah. to see him sort of come to that conclusion of his own volition. Like he's not doing that because the captain wants him to. He's doing that because he realises, like, oh, you know, if if, if we're going to bring down this corrupt police guy. I might have to dangle the deer out of the window, or or, or I might have to shoot it the, the captain in the back, you know, like yeah. Because there's a there's a scene where uh, Bud White is like smashing the uh, is it the DA the like district attorney's head against the wall, and actually and actually looking at him like yeah, that's good, do that. Just like hey, I mean, the, the DA even says to me, he says, "Oh, actually, stop him." He's like, "I don't know how to do that." Like... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I like that the sort of moral ambiguity. You know, there's lots of like it's quite like a morally grey world so i like that well I, I, and i feel like even bud white undergoes that too because he obviously starts off as just this very violent guy who's brought in just to beat up suspects or whatever or get answers out of them 
Um, but even by the end, he goes from, okay, I don't want to be just this violent enforcer anymore. I actually want to help bring this corruption to an end. So they both, um, they sort of like bleed into each other in a way, like they sort of yeah. become each other in a sense. Um, yeah. And, 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 and as does Vincent to a degree yeah. too, I mean, he obviously he becomes, goes from being yeah. this guy who's just, oh, I want to, you know, get, get my name out there in, in this tabloid and work on this TV show. But even he decides after um, this Matt Reynolds, who's played by Simon Baker, there's a lot of like Australians in this film. You know, Simon Baker, Guy Pearce, Russell Crowe, who's sort of an, uh, like an honorary Australian. But like after this Matt Reynolds got killed, Vincent is like, you know what? I'm going to help you actually because I I, I want to bring this because he was sort of involved in him dying in a way. So he's like, you know, I feel like everybody undergoes like a transformation of sorts, which is interesting to watch. Yeah, no, it is. But this is sort of my bad in the sense that the whole side plot with the actor, what was he called? Matt? The, the, Matt okay, Reynolds. That guy. I fell asleep yeah. for like five minutes and I missed. Oh, and I missed. So I woke up and this guy was dead on the floor in this like motel. And I was like, who the fuck is that? So I had to. <laughs> well, and the thing is too, it was never explained even what, like what, if you read it on, on Wikipedia, it's like this Hudgens was involved in setting this Matt Reynolds up with the DA and like some homosexual thing and they were going to get photos of him. But at, at the time you're watching it, that was never even explained. Like it was just like, Oh, go and talk to him. And so, yeah. So yeah, it's like we said, it's nothing is really fully explained in the film. You need to like, it, like it, it, if you need to go to Wikipedia to find out what's happening, your film isn't a five star film. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what else do I like? I like the sort of, uh, the themes of like corruption and power, like you were saying, it sort of highlights the extent of the corruption that those individuals have and the sort of lengths they'll go to protect their interests. So I really, I really like those sort of power dynamics. Um, and I thought the plot, like it was well paced. I thought in the first half an hour or so, it was a bit slow, but I think it, you know, the pacing is good on the whole. So, you know, um, and as you said, I like the performances, you know, the three male leads are good. Um, James Cromwell is good as the captain. He's very sort of starts to become more sort of ruthless as it goes on. And I see so he starts off as this sort of pretends to be this nice cop, but he starts to get more evil, which I liked. Um, I will say, I don't know how Kim Bassinger won at the Oscar for best supporting. Actress oh, yeah, she 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 did not, she was that. not, she was good, but how did she win an Oscar? I don't, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. Like she wasn't that she wasn't that good. Like there was no scene where I thought, okay, you're like delivering an Oscar winning speech or you're, you know. I was like, no, I didn't get that. But, you know, she she was fine. She was good. Um and yeah, I thought the production values were good, the cinematography. Because basically I thought it was gonna be I'm I'm glad that they didn't shoot it almost like a noir, like a fifties noir, because the cinematographer wanted to be modern while keeping the like aesthetics of the period. So that's where he shot it quite like bright in a way, like quite glowy. Like it wasn't like a classic noir film, but all the, you know, production design was, you know, because it, it actually influenced the game L.A. Noir. Oh, right. Well. Okay. Yeah. Did yeah, the yeah. game L.A. Noir. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it was a heavy influence for that. So all the sets and costumes, like the vintage look, that was all great. Um, the costumes and makeup were great, so you know I, I'm a big fan of the noir period. So you know, I, I I loved it for that. 
um, and the score the score was good for sort of there was jazzy jazzy soundtrack kind of you know, captioned the noir as well um, and actually I read that the director he got the cast he gave the cast like mini film festivals each week <laughs> where he showed like the bad and the beautiful um, because this is from Wikipedia because it epitomized the glamorous Hollywood look he showed in a lonely place which is my favorite noir <laughs> um, because it revealed the ugly underbelly of Hollywood glamour um, Don Siegel's the lineup for its lean and efficient style and Kiss Me Deadly because it was so rooted in the futuristic 50s so he showed the cast and crew these films which I think bled into the production for sure it says that uh, Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce did a lot of research with on police training real life cops um, so they did, for six weeks they conducted rehearsals which you know they spoke through the scripts how they can be these cops. So I thought that was, you know, there was lots of prep going into it. But yeah, my my main issues were with the pacing for the first half. The performances were good, but Kim Basinger, I don't know how she won the Oscar. <laughs> and the story, you know, was too a bit too complicated for me. Uh, and I do like Noirs to be a bit more like gritty. I know the ending scene was gritty with the shootout, but it was almost a bit too like glowy, a bit too like. I don't know, just a bit too clean cut for me because I like noirs to be a bit more hard boiled. Um, but yeah, it's a good film. It's it's a good film. Wouldn't it wouldn't crack any of my sort of um, favorites lists, but it's good. Well, two out of three so far. Exactly, we've agreed. This is a, this is a a milestone. <laughs> Actually, no, we've agreed on we've agreed on yeah, two before. It, it just it, seems still, rare. It's still, it's rare. It's rare. <laughs> I don't yeah. know how we'll fail on the next film, but I didn't hate it as much well, as I think yeah, exactly. you or Jacob expected exactly. me to. Yeah. So I was, I was. We we can talk about it, but yes. I was shook. I was. I shook. know. I was, I was expecting like, a shook. WhatsApp message. I know. <laughs> so this is Jacob's pick. Surprise, surprise. Um, you know he likes his strange films. Um, as I don't think in the time he's been on the podcast, so I was going to say I don't think he's picked a normal film yet. Right. I, mean, I can't. Jacob, I don't know if this is true, but I can't picture you sitting down and watching like Casablanca and being like, <laughs> oh, just like normally sitting down or like gone with the wind. Yeah, no, see, <laughs> I, I know, I, I would agree. I mean, like, but, it, but I appreciate you, for, you know, I like the films Jacob likes as well, so yeah. I appreciate that. But it's like, I think if you look at the films, just pictures for Whale, Bad Boy Bubby, Persona, um, Big Bug, Old Boy, and, uh, the discreet charm of a bourgeois, and and, and now uh... you see, you see, I like more than half of those, so we're on the same yeah. wavelength. Yeah. But I <laughs> just find it funny. I just find it funny how I just can't quite picture him sitting down and watching like a sort of classic Hollywood or something, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. You know, yeah, I guess you know Christian was the same. Christian would fix him yeah, up yeah, exactly. stuff at times yeah, too. Exactly. So, yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah. So okay. we're, we're we're used to it to a degree. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yes, this is Videodrome from 1983, um, directed by David Cronenberg. Um, so we have uh, talked about a Cronenberg uh, film on the podcast before, or I have at least. I can't actually find it in the. I haven't. So it must have been. Yeah, it must have been a Christian. I I know yeah. we have because I I swear we have. It's Shivers, um, oh. which is also by Cronenberg, but I can't find yeah, it. That's one of his early. That's one of his earlier ones. 
I swear, I remember seeing it. It's not in my, see, maybe, and I still, I know, see, so have I, but I, it's not in my podcast picks list, nor is it actually on the That's podcast weird. page. Okay. But, but I yeah. do remember talking about it, or I, or maybe, something. Yeah. I remember watching it. It's very strange. Anyway, so I, I've seen Shivers, um, which I didn't think much of, um, but that's the only David Cronenberg film I've seen. Apart from this, I've seen uh, I've seen The Fly. Um, what else have I seen? I've seen um, The Brood, which is good. I've seen Scanners, which I liked less than this, but it's still solid. Um, Rabid, which is one of his earlier ones. But yeah, the the main one I want to see, which probably you dislike, is called Crash. Um, oh it's yeah, one of yeah. his most famous yeah. ones about sort of um yes it's like a car especially sex sex with or in cars it's like a sadomasochistic yeah. car sex film which <laughs> you probably give a half star to <laughs> but, but yeah. like a lot of his other films i want to see like i want to see the boot i want to see scanners yeah. um so it's they're, like they're they're horror films more than like the, the like the brood is a horror film much right. more than something like videodrome um it's yeah. like a classic horror but um mm. yeah um, okay. Yes. So, get... so uh, yes, this is a science fiction body horror. Um, stars uh, James Woods um, and actually Debbie Harry of Blondie fame. James Woods plays somebody called Max Wren, who runs this. I couldn't really figure out why. It's a TV channel, but it 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 it's not like a TV channel in the sense of you or I would watch it's it's like a weird it's like it's like a sort of underground weird one where they he basically people pitch shows to him and he chooses what goes right exactly yeah so there's a lot of uh but it's like it's like he he mentions it it's like softcore porn kind of yeah and there's that and there's like violence on there there's all this sort of you know it's the sort of programming you wouldn't get on like a normal tv station is the point you wouldn't see it on BBC One. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, in in the midst of you know trying to find new shows to put on this TV channel, um, he comes across or his uh, his sort of offsider called Harlan uh, comes across this show called Videodrome, uh, which shows people it's basically like snuff films right it shows people being tortured and murdered and um, they find out after originally thinking it's in asia they find out it's actually in pittsburgh um and uh this this radio host who max is involved with uh called uh nikki um she uh, she, she's sort of like this sadomasochist she decides oh well, i'm going to go there to be on this show she goes there and never comes back um let me just say she needs therapy yes i agree I think. <laughs> um and uh and so he sort of goes goes looking for her and he ends up uh meeting with this uh, woman called bianca um whose father so her name is bianca oblivion her father's name was brian oblivion um who was this media theorist who was based on real life marshall McLuhan, um and Brian Oblivion um, had this vision where uh, TV would replace like everyday life, um, and but but what happened is his like partners in this venture um, 
decided that, I guess, too, uh, too positive for them. Um, and they wanted to use it for more nefarious purposes. So they killed him. Um, so he meets with this Bianca, um, and she tells him, or, or really actually a tape of Brian Oblivion tells him, because he made like tens of thousands of tapes uh, before he died, um, he tells him that Videodrome is actually, it's not just a random show, um, it's actually uh, this, um, I guess, propaganda piece, um, which this group is carrying out uh, to, I guess, get rid of the undesirable. So people who see this Videodrome, it, it puts a, uh, it gives whoever watches it this brain tumour, uh, with the point of it being that because it is, you know, such violent viewing, you're seeing people get killed, that anybody who watches such a such a uh, such a show uh, shouldn't be in society to begin with, and so it's basically killing off the people who would want to watch such content. Um, and how this Max and gets involved is you find out he was, um, you know, so you find out Harlan was basically like a double agent, as it were, and he is working for this um, spectacular optical corporation, who is this front for this group who is behind Videodrome. And you find out Harlan actually, uh, you know, uh, made Max watch it or sort of brought it to Max's attention because this group thinks that, you know, well, the sort of content that is on uh, Channel 83, I believe it is, um, which is uh, Max's station. Um, obviously, they're not showing things like snuff films, but this group believes that, you know, the sort of people who would watch such such filth as this, you know, pornography and violence that is on his channel, um, you know, they should also be eliminated. So they they intend to, you know, put Videodrome out to the people who watch this this channel to get rid of all them and then the plan is, you know, to take it bigger and, and basically eliminate all the uh all the uh undesirables of the world, as, as Wikipedia puts it, to end North America's cultural decay by giving fatal brain tumors to anyone so obsessed with sex and violence that they would watch Videodrome. Um, and so Max ends up getting brainwashed uh, to kill his two um, like senior colleagues at this TV station. And he also goes to kill Bianca um, under this brainwashing, but she ends up reverting brainwashing because she's well aware of this group and what they're doing uh, because they obviously killed her father the same way. Um, so then she reprograms Max um, to the cause of Brian Oblivion, which is death to Videodrome, long live the new flesh. Um, and so as he's reprogrammed, he goes and kills Harlan. Um, he goes and kills this guy called uh, Barry Convex, um, who's sort of uh, running the, the corporation, or he's sort of, you know, the, one of the people involved in it, at least. He ends up watching television uh and nikki is it's there even though she's been shown to have died previously and we'll get into the fact that there's a lot of hallucinations in this film and you know fingers jumping out of a tv etc um nikki appears to him on screen and says you know the last thing you have to do you know to to destroy this videodrome is uh, to kill yourself um and the tv shows an image of max doing this um, and then the film ends with Max saying, long live the new flesh, and he shoots himself, and the film ends. Um, so I thought that was actually quite a coherent 
summary for what is a confusing film. <laughs> um, so I didn't dislike this as much as I thought I would. I expected to go in and tell you it's going to be a half star. I'm going to hate this film. Uh, I actually gave it three stars. Um, yeah. that's a, for, for a film like this, that's a good score for you. I know. So <laughs> it is because I, I fully went in expecting this to be a half star. Yeah. So yeah, I you know it, it was it was weird because it's David Cronenberg and he makes very strange films, and so that did sort of the weirdness of it and the absurdity of what I was watching did limit my enjoyment to a degree. And other people would revel in that, but I guess the reason I gave it a much higher rating than either you or Jacob or I expected is because I thought the message of it and what the themes of it and what it was, you know, the point of, of what the whole Videodrome is, I, I very much liked that. Yeah, it's very thematically strong. It's a very thematically yes. strong film. And it's still thematically relevant, as a lot of yeah. reviews I read said. Um, I would compare it to, and I think this film is better, um, but it reminded me of something like Network. Yeah, it shares similarities um, with Network. Yeah. yeah, I prefer Network. Um, I think Network... Yeah, I mean, we have talked about Network on the podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, it, it reminded me of that, and I thought, well, that was a really good film, um, which also takes this message of, like, TV and the power of TV, etc., to the extreme. Right? Obviously, they're, they're also killing people. Um, so, but I, I guess, you know, it, so I sort of looked at it in that vein, but I'm just like, it was sort of too out there for me to be like, oh, I'll give it three and a half or four stars. But I could definitely appreciate the messaging behind it, even if I guess the content itself got a bit too weird for my taste. Okay. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yes, but uh, it's you know a much 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 uh, better time of than I thought I would have. So what did you think? <laughs> um, well, I watched this two years ago because um, I have the I have the uh, people can't see but I have the I have the Blu-ray for from an Arrow. It's reversed, but anyway. Um, so I got that two years ago, and I gave it um, four stars the the first time. Um, and yeah, so my second time watching it, I gave it four stars again. Um, I wasn't taken with it the same as I was the first time. Like I liked it slightly less, but I but I still enjoyed it. Hence the same rating. Um, but you know, there, there's something with it where I can't bring myself to like fully love it or be completely taken by it but i more admire it as you say for the themes it tackles it does really well and the practical effects which i think are superb i love the practical effects in this film um and you know it has a good pace and a good structure it's um the, the script is good um and i like the whole concept because i know it came from cronenberg's fascination with you know the dangers of technology and sort of um the rise of cable television, the increasing prevalence of graphic violence on, um, on um, TV. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's lots of themes, you know, the sort of media manipulation. Um, the film suggests that television, you know, has the ability to shape our sort of perceptions, desires, our reality. So I, I, I love that sort of angle. Um, you know, there, there's the blurring of reality and fiction, you know, all the hallucinations it sort of leads him, leads Max to sort of question the nature of his own existence in a way. Um, and it shows that media can kind of distort reality. And I really like that as well. Um, there's lots of sort of sexual power dynamics with Max and um, Nikki, you know, the sort of um, potential for exploitation within the media landscape. 
you know, it touches upon BDSM, uh, voyeurism, the sort of commodification of sexuality. There's all those stuff, which I like as well. So yeah, the sort of social commentary, I think Cronenberg really delves deep into, and I think it it's a really good film for that. Um, and, you know, the, the performances are good. Um, again, nothing Oscar-worthy or standout. You know, there, there never are in these Cronenberg films. But, you know, Matt James Woods, he shows the sort of um, descent into paranoia. You know, he, he handles that really well as he becomes increasingly entangled in this world. Um, Debbie Harry is good, you know. Um, I liked so- her name was Sonia Smith. I hadn't heard of her before, but she plays Bianca. I thought she was she was good. Um, you know, she conveys the sort of her her sort of commitment to exposing the dangers of Videodrome. She, I think, she works really well in, in that role. Um, and finally, you know, the the practical effects are just so good. You know, you have the like the pulsating tapes, um, the the the, the moving TV, or is like vein the veins on the TV. Um, the you know the opening in his stomach with the with the gun in it. Um, when the the evil guy dies, he like his body is like opening and his brains are popping out, and it's just I uh, just you know I that's probably didn't what I don't think you loved it that much, but oh, I mean I I mean I I do think the special effects were good. Yeah, from I, a technical standpoint, yes, the, you know yeah. that's what you expect from a Cronenberg. Yeah. I, I I will commend um, their special effects because they were done by a guy called Rick Baker. Who did um, the stuff on uh, an American Werewolf in London, um, Men in Black? You know he's a very renowned figure in the field of practical effects. So you know there's prosthetics, the animatronics, puppetry. Um, you know everything is so like grotesque and like intricate. It's it's really good. Um, so I love that. Um, so yeah, I mean not not much more to add. You know we I could we could talk about the themes for for ages because there's you know. There's you know loss of autonomy, corporate interest, um, power of visual media. You know, there's, there's all this stuff going on, which you know I'm sure other people have discussed until the cows come home. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I I think it's a good film. But you know, I again I couldn't bring myself to like call it one of my favorites or you know fall in love with it. But for what it for what Cronenberg was trying to do, I think he accomplishes it 100. percent and makes it entertaining at the same time. So, yeah. 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 I mean, I'd say, I mean, I actually wasn't really impressed by the acting. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I, I actually thought, um, but you, did you think Harlan, it was bad? Um, I, I think know, it was good. I, mean, I think it was fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I thought Hart, Peter Dvorsky, who played Harlan, I thought he was good. Um, I don't know if I'd say it was bad. I don't know. It just didn't really grab me. I thought, I um, thought um, James Woods was, you know, good in in the role he was given you know yeah. he had to portray this you know charming guy originally you know spiraling into the descent of a video drone i thought he did a really good job personally yeah um uh and i, I think i liked it more than shivers because of what you mentioned it there was like a deeper meaning there was a point to it you know it wasn't just i feel like with shivers it was just oh zombies um you know i mean cronenberg a... normally tries to you know imbue his films with meaning and sort of yeah. messages and i'm sure there's something in shivers i'm not going to rewatch it to find out what it is but yeah. um I, I i did think it was an interesting thing of like like you know suppressing these base or these taboo desires by like population control right i was like i don't think i've seen that done i'm sure it has been done but i don't think i've seen it done in a film before um 
and and this whole slogan of like long live new flesh i was like that said there's so much of his film that applies to today but i'm like you look at that and it's like that's happening today like you know these people they want to they want to transcend their physical bodies and become avatars and live in virtual reality for their whole life you know yeah and even the whole thing with like violence on television like that's a discussion that's been going on since the 80s probably probably longer probably before that yeah now (laughs) and before that so you know it's it's very prevalent yeah Um, yeah i i I thought the themes in it were very interesting which is i i connected more with the themes I guess then, you know, like like some people would watch it and be like, "Oh wow, weren't this?" And the effects were good. I'm not taking away from the effects, but they'd be like, "Oh wow, weren't the effects like amazing?" Or like, "Whoa, wasn't it a really trippy film?" Whereas I'm like, I actually really liked the point of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I I think Seth is still so much of what he's trying to get across, which is relevant today. Yeah. You know, what thirty, no, forty years later. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I I have a soft spot for like body horror. Like, I love that shit when it comes on. I'm like, like Cronenberg, you know. Yeah, well, it's obviously I'm not yeah. into that, yeah. but I mean, but I, I appreciate it. Have you seen The Fly? No. no, you haven't seen The Fly. Okay, that has like good body yeah. horror too. But yeah, you know, it's um that's what I appreciate. It's like it's a it's a typical Cronenberg film in terms of like the body horror, but it also has. Yeah, a much deeper meaning than just oh look his gun his hands yeah. are gone or oh look the TV's pulsating yeah. like it's yeah, deeper exactly. than that you know so yeah cool well okay. I think that wraps up episode forty six uh, as always if you enjoyed today's episode we'd love if you would give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and we'll see you next week.